And as you're taking your seat, grab your Bibles and open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. If you are new with us this morning, it's helpful for you to understand that you've maybe walked into a mini-series that we started a few weeks ago uh, to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We're looking back at our history and we're being refreshed and reminded about how we got to where we are today as a Protestant church. 500 years ago today, or excuse me, uh, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, a German monk, nailed 95 theses to the church wall in Wittenberg, Germany, and there he ignited a reformation. Those theses, if you've been with us, you know that those were uh, disagreements, they were arguments, rebuttals against the, the doctrine of the day, against the church of the day, the Roman Catholic Church, of which Martin Luther was a part of. But he saw that there were significant problems, both morally and theologically. The church had begun to erode, and in a period of about a thousand years, the gospel of Jesus Christ was essentially veiled and lost. And Luther saw this, along with the other reformers, and he nailed that 95, those 95 theses to the wall so that the truth could be discussed and debated and hopefully recovered and rescued. The Protestant Reformation reminds us that these were protests. They were protests against these theological and moral abuses in the church. And the idea of Reformation reminds us that they, there was a longing to reform what had been distorted and deformed, to be brought back in line with what the Word of God faithfully and accurately teaches. At the time of the Reformation, the church's official teaching was clear that nobody would be able to die righteous enough to have merited salvation fully. We saw that last week as we looked at a grace alone by faith alone, our salvation is accomplished, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. You can imagine that this concept of not being able to die and merit salvation fully, cause some angst and anxiety in the hearts of the average person. Martin Luther certainly experienced this anxiety in his own heart. It didn't provide a great sense of peace and assurance that God would accept them. A holy and righteous God would accept a sinner. So in an effort to grant a sense of peace Many doctrines were developed in the Catholic Church. One doctrine in particular was the doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory being that place between heaven and earth, essentially, that you went to to have your sins purged from you so that you could be made righteous enough to enter into the presence of God. Apart from a mortal sin like murder, every sinner in the Catholic Church would have a chance after death have their sins expunged fully in purgatory, fully cleansed. Aside or alongside this, excuse me, um, for the here and now, the Catholic Church had developed the doctrine of penance and confession to a priest. The priest would demand that various acts of penance would be performed. Acts of penance were ways that you paid penalties for your sin, consequences that you embraced that would ultimately help repay or expunge again the sin and the consequences of it in your life. Any sins not dealt with through penance would be dealt with ultimately in purgatory. The good news was that there were saints who had been so good Not only had they had enough merit to enter heaven directly, bypassing purgatory altogether, but they had actually accumulated enough merit to enter heaven for themselves, but also to give away to other people. 
This spare merit of theirs was kept in what came to be known as the church's treasury of merit, to which the Pope had the keys, and therefore he could dispense the merit to any soul that he deemed worthy, fast-tracking that soul through purgatory ultimately into the presence of God in heaven. Over time, this could be earned through good deeds, but more often it was purchased through what became known as indulgences, ways to, again, strip time off of the time you had to spend in purgatory. And it became clear that a bit of cash, listen, not Christ, could secure spiritual bliss and peace before God. Indulgences and relics were commonplace during the medieval period, during the time of Martin Luther, heading right up to the Reformation. In fact, this was the very issue at the core of the Reformation that that ignited the heart of Martin Luther to nail those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. These relics were held forth as a way to somehow accumulate more righteousness and again, strip time off of your stint in purgatory a relic such as a wisp of straw from Christ's crib. I'm not sure how they verified that. A strand of the beard of Jesus Christ, a nail from the cross, a piece of bread from the last supper, a sliver of the cross of Christ. There were innumerable teeth and bones from celebrated saints. I'll never forget being in Romania a year ago and walking into an old Greek Orthodox church and right in the middle was a box, a clear box that contained the finger bone of a saint that was hundreds of years old and people around it bowing to it and praising it and seemingly worshiping it. Veneration of each piece or each relic was worth an indulgence And if you would venerate one of these prized possessions, many of them, by the way, were fakes and frauds, obviously, but if you venerated this relic, then that could strip a hundred days off of your time in purgatory. It it was said that there were approximately, in Wittenberg, Germany, at the castle church there, there was 19,000 relics that the devoted follower, if you do the math, the devoted follower, if you venerated each and every one individually uh, over a period of time, you could knock off 1,900,000 days of your time in purgatory. Not bad. One of the sellers of these indulgences was a man by the name of Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel was a traveling evangelist of sorts. Really, he was a a traveling salesman selling indulgences, these prized possessions, these fakes and these frauds with a certificate that declared that it was legitimate, had the authority of the Pope, and a guarantee that they could knock time off of their their days in purgatory. Johann Tetzel was a a very clever salesman, and he had quite a few jingles, some of them, I believe, at the top of the billboards during the day. One of them, my favorite in particular, goes something like this. When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Clever. Or how about this one? Place your penny on the drum and the pearly gates open and in strolls mum. He tried to guilt people into purchasing these indulgences. The money, by the way, went directly to the Catholic Church to build opulent buildings getting rich off the back of the poor, scamming them out of their money. He would convince them to purchase more and more indulgences, saying things like this, don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents? 
Have mercy on me because we are in severe punishment and pain. From this, you could redeem us with a small alms, right? For three easy payments of $9.99, you can release your suffering, tormented, dead relatives from purgatory and spring them into the presence of eternal bliss. Can you feel the pressure and the weight that was placed upon the backs of the average individual in the church? This is the way that people live. This is the way that people operated. And in some ways, they embraced this mindset. It was said, though, that there were some people who really saw through this scam. One man, it's said, went up to Johann Tetzel and asked if he could purchase an indulgence for a sin not yet committed. To, to which Tetzel said, I guess so, why not? And he wrote him a certificate. This man later met Tetzel outside the city walls and beat him to a pulp, handed him back the certificate and says, that was the sin I was talking about. <laughs> But the issue ultimately, listen, was over the abandoning of repentance as a means to be made right with God and to bring peace between God and man. There was being offered another way to have peace with God, to, to get yourself away from the wrath and anger of God. Purchase these indulgences, venerate these relics, and you can strip time off of purgatory and eventually get yourself, do you see this? Get yourself into the presence of God. You could make peace with God through your efforts, through your purchases, not just for yourself, but even for those who are already dead. This was the issue that ignited the Reformation. Martin Luther saw this as a scandal. And if you were to read through his 95 theses, virtually every one has to do with the idea of indulgences, replacing the idea of repentance and implied faith in Jesus Christ. And while Luther's theology was not yet fully developed when he wrote his 95 Theses, he was still processing a lot, he would later come to see what was really at the heart of this practice and so many of the problems in the church of the day. It was that things were being offered up to make peace with God, and at the heart of these practices was a denial, listen, of Christ and Christ alone. Paul turns in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18, to address this issue of the object of our faith. We've looked at grace alone, these five solas, we've looked at the two of them already, grace alone through faith alone, and as we saw last week, we, re we recognize and we must recognize, it's not our faith that saves us, it is the object of our faith. It is the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, who makes peace between us and God, and it is therefore then the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, who allows us to enjoy peace with one another in the body of Christ. This is at the heart of what Paul is writing. And this idea of Christ alone reminds us that the answer to humanity's greatest problem and all of our problems ultimately are found not in our works, not in anything we can do or buy or be. They are found in Christ alone. This is the universal reality for all of humanity and it has far-reaching implications as I trust we'll see this morning together. So let's look at verses 11 through 13. Let's read them together and let's dig into the word of God. Paul writes this, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is a a tight connection in verses 11 through 13 with the previous section we looked at in verses 1 through 4. There's almost a parallel where Paul is kind of outlining the plight of humanity, the greatest problem of humanity. Before, in verses 1 through 3, we saw that humanity's greatest problem is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually, we have no life. And this is exactly what Paul wants to hit on here, that Christ alone is our life. Christ alone is our life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we saw that that we were ruled and in bondage to the deceit of Satan and the world system. We were ruled by the desires of our flesh, the passions that wage war within us, and ultimately, because of our sin and separation from God, every human being is in a position of being condemned before a holy God. And here, Paul essentially wants to reaffirm what he's already said in verses one through three, but he does so now by identifying two different groups of individuals, the Gentiles, who are also called the uncircumcision, and the Jews, who are known as the circumcision. Here in verses 11 and 12, he refers particularly to the Gentile world before Christ. Now, it's helpful to know that a Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. So here he's talking about essentially all of humanity apart from the Jewish people. And he's saying this is the condition that they were in. He identifies the Gentiles as those who were referred to as the uncircumcision by the Jews, the circumcision. And you just have to sense here that there was a bit of scorn in these terms that are being used. These were derogatory terms that were often leveled back and forth. There was great hostility in the ancient world between Jews and Gentiles. Circumcision had, of course, been given by God to Abraham as the outward sign of membership of his covenant people. But both the physical right and the word had actually come to assume kind of an exaggerated importance in the ancient world. There was a strong ethnocentric, really racially charged kind of discrimination that existed in the ancient world. And Paul emphasizes this here. He's showing us that there is is intense division and hostility and angst between these two people groups, and there is a sort of prizing. The Jewish people prize their position before God, and so you can see them looking at their, their, their position before God, and obviously circumcision was a reminder that we are God's people. We are accepted by God. We are loved by God, and you're uncircumcised. It's a reminder that you're not. You're not a part of God's people. God's favor is not upon you. He's chosen us and not you. Paul points out what so many Jews failed to miss, that the external sign was not the greater reality. In fact, the physical symbol was more importantly pointing to the spiritual reality that God longed for in the heart of all his people, circumcision of the heart. What was needed was a removal of a heart that was foreign and alienated from God and replaced with a heart that is near to God, close to God. And now what he's saying is that this is available to Jews and Gentiles alike. It's a reminder here of what it means to truly know life. Not in the physical sense, in the spiritual sense. You'll notice there that verse 12 and 13, he actually begins to get to the heart of the problem for the Gentiles, for really essentially all the world apart from Christ. And look at verse 13. It helps really shape how we understand Paul's thinking about verse 12. Verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far 
off. This is what it means to experience spiritual death. It is to be far off from God. It is to have no relationship with God. This is the result of sin. It separates us. It alienates us. It makes us strangers from the life we were intended to enjoy in God. And he reminds us here that those who are near to God, who have been brought near, are those who know and enjoy and experience life and life in the fullest. It's through this framework then that we can look at what Paul says in verse 12 and understand what does it mean then to be dead or to be far off. He lists five things in verse 12 that essentially describe an, an another, from another angle what it means to be spiritually dead. I'll give them to you first and then we'll chip through them one at a time. To be spiritually dead essentially is to be Christless, it is to be homeless, it is to be friendless, it is to be hopeless, and it is to be godless. Verse 12 tells us first that they were Christless. Look at what it says. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. This is really, truly tragic considering that he has already outlined the great blessings of being in Christ in verse 1. He's talked about how the lavish grace of God is available and poured out upon us in Christ Jesus. And here he demonstrates that that is not available to everybody. It is not lavished upon everybody. See, those, apart from the Jewish people, they had no expectation of a Christ. Remember, Christ is not a last name for Jesus. It's a title. It's a title that means the Messiah, the promised one. The implication is that here the Gentile people in their spiritual death, there's no hope of someone who is going to come to rescue them. There's no hope of someone who's going to deliver them from their bondage, from their alienation from God. They're separated, and there's no one there to repair the damage. That's the picture you have to in mind. They are Christless. Secondly, they're homeless. He says not only are they separated from Christ, but they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth gives us the idea that they are a nation, a nation especially in the Old Testament context, a nation under God where there's a theocratic rule, where God rules his people and he dwells with his people. And the people of God understood that they had a unique citizenship amongst all the other nations. All other peoples were ultimately aliens. They didn't belong, and I think that's the heart here of what it means to be alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You see, every one of us, we long for belonging. We long to be in community with other people. And yes, all the nations had that sense of belonging in their individual communities, but this points to the greater picture of the community that we were supposed to be experiencing and belonging in the community of God's people. They live in a land, but in the greater sense of their humanity, they're ultimately homeless because they do not know their father. They're friendless. They're friendless. Notice what it says there again in verse 12, that they are strangers to the covenants of promise. God had always developed his relationship and related to his people through the idea and the concept of covenants. A covenant promise was made whereby God uh, was able to relate to his creation in their sinful condition. God had promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 15 that he would eventually save them, but in the meantime, he covenanted with them to be a faithful God to them, to be their God, and they be his people. 
It was through Abraham that God promised that he would bring about a savior for the nations, that he would unite all people to himself in the seed of Abraham. And here the people of God received the blessings of proximity to God, friendship with God through the covenants, not enmity with God like all the nations around them. And they were hopeless. This is what it means to be spiritually dead. It's Christless, homeless, friendless, and hopeless. They lacked the covenants of God. They lacked the hope of a savior, a rescuer, and a deliverer. They lacked the hope of salvation. They lacked the hope of having what was broken in their sinful condition, mended before a holy God. And ultimately, this reminds us that they were without God in the world. They were utterly godless. Listen, there is no greater sign of spiritual death than to be God-forsaken. And that's what people apart from Christ experienced all throughout the Old Testament. They were forsaken by God. No possibility of a relationship no desire for it in their sinful, hardened hearts, no love for God, no worship of Him. You see, if you are Christless, homeless, friendless, hopeless, and godless, you are spiritually lifeless. In Israel, on the other hand, they knew true life because God in His kindness had been brought near to them. God in His grace revealed himself to them and showed them through the law how they could relate to him and live in fellowship and relationship with him. And this reminds us, listen, that there was a wall that kept us separated and alienated from God and his people. There's a barrier that exists between all those who don't know Christ and God, a barrier of sin that keeps us far off from God and from knowing and experiencing and enjoying the true life that God can give us in Christ. We're commanded, you notice in verse 11 and 12, right at the very beginning, to remember these things. Paul is writing to a predominantly Gentile church family and he looks at them and he says, look, you, you need to remember who you were before you were mercifully saved in Christ. Remember who you were before God in his love reached down and found you. It's so pivotal for them to understand what Paul is about to bring to their attention. I think it's important as we look at verse 13 to realize that the, the but now reminds us back to verse 4 of but God. Listen, in this hopeless condition, in this humanly unthinkable and, and impossible condition, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God saw you, God reached down, and God rescued you. You know, we long for life. We search for it, sadly, in all kinds of ways and places and people and things. And we believe that there are things that can give us this life from this world. But verse 13, that simple but now, it's a reminder that it is God who gives life by bringing us near by the blood of Christ. That language by the blood of Christ, sometimes we glance over that so quickly, we forget there's an entire Old Testament backdrop to this. It's kind of Paul's code language to remind them of the idea of sacrifice and death and substitution. In fact, Leviticus 17.11 tells us this. This is kind of the foundational verse for understanding the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. He said, why? Why were they sacrificing animals time after time, sin after sin, bringing animals into the temple before the high priest to sacrifice and let the blood drain out of another animal? 
Here's why. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You see, the entire picture of the sacrificial system is that something else had to die. Its life had to be drained from them in place of you and me. Those were always temporary signs pointing towards the greater reality of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would be slain. Listen, once for all, as was read earlier from Hebrews chapter 9. Only his blood could restore what was broken. Only his blood could reclaim what was lost. Only his blood could revive what was dead and lifeless. There are people today who look at the cross of Christ and the, the very mention, even in some, some quote-unquote evangelical churches today, where they want to look at the cross and say, uh, we want a bloodless cross. We don't want to think about a cross being needed to pay for sins. We don't, we don't think it's right to think of God killing his son so that we could live. There are many who want to abandon the idea of a bloody cross, but the scriptures will not allow us to do so, for to abandon a bloody cross is to abandon all hope for our souls, because if Christ did not atone for our sins, then we must atone for them in hell for eternity. It is the cross that appeases the wrath of God and removes that barrier of sin and judgment that once kept us far off. Don't you see how the cross removes that barrier and draws us close to God? I love what Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4, reminding us of how the cross really provides life for us. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Speaking of his death and his resurrection and exaltation, listen to this. When Christ, I love this, who is your life. Just think about that for a second. When Christ, who is your life, he is the very essence of your life. He is the only one who could give you life. There is no one who could pay for your sins and breathe new life into you again. Only Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, Christ and Christ alone is our life. And that's what Paul wants to make clear. He is the hope of life for any and all. There is now no distinction between Jew and Gentiles. Everybody comes through Christ and him alone. Secondly, Christ alone is our peace. Christ alone is our peace. Verses 14 through 16, look at what Paul says. He says this. He says, for he himself is our peace, who, made, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, the emphasis here that Paul is wanting to drive into our hearts is this, that God, through Jesus Christ, has created vertical peace between us and him, which then establishes a horizontal peace with everyone else. The blood of Christ makes it possible for Jews and Gentiles to come profoundly near to a holy and righteous God. Why? Because, as the text says in an emphatic way, he himself is our peace. I, I love that. And you might want to circle that second himself there. You know, Paul could have just written these words. He is our peace. 
And that would have been perfectly fine, perfectly appropriate, but Paul, he em- emphasizes this by putting himself in there to just take that, that nail of the peace of Christ and take one big hammer blow and swing hard at it to let us know, listen, it is only because of Christ that you can be at peace with God. That there's no other way. There's nothing you could do. There's no one else you could turn to. You know, this is the very reason why we preach an exclusive gospel church. This is why we would never say that all roads lead to the top of the mountain. This is why we don't believe all religions are equal. Listen, all people are valued by God, made in the image of God. Listen, but not all paths that people want to create and walk on to get to God lead them there. There is only one way to have peace with God. Only one way. His name is Jesus. He himself is our peace. And so his blood, it excludes all other human efforts. All attempts to achieve peace with God in our own effort and ability is utterly eradicated. Jesus, once for all, his sacrifice paid for sin entirely. I love what Colossians 2 talks about when it talks about, you know, the certificate of debt that every one of us had. It's always such a powerful and vivid reminder from my own heart. Like every one of us had a certificate of debt Our sins accumulated on a heavenly ledger. Think about this. Every single sin you ever committed, every sin you've ever thought, every evil deed recorded on a heavenly ledger, and here it is, held up. If we were to stand before God, our certificate of debt would read, done in sin, guilty, 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 and the pages, we wouldn't even be able to count the pages. And in Colossians chapter two, it talks about how Jesus, the cross, took our 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 debt, our certificate of debt, and Jesus, he nailed it to the cross. So where it read guilty, it now is stamped over top of it, paid in full, so that you and I stand in the presence of God, innocent and uncondemned before him. Isn't that awesome? The gospel teaches us this through the blood of Christ. It's such a powerful picture of the love of God and the rich mercy of God that we couldn't earn it and so he earned it for us. We couldn't pay the debt so he paid it for us. He brought objective peace between us and God. The sin that created hostility and alienation in our relationship was resolved in the cross of Christ so that now we and him can be back together. You see, during the time of the Reformation, though, the sacraments were not only a way to impart grace to the sinner, but in one sense, the seven sacraments that we've looked at in previous weeks, they were intended to provide a sort of subjective peace for the sinner. If you do these things, you can have assurance, at least for the moment, that you are right with God. And the moment you're not, you get back in, you confess your sins, you go through the motions, you do what we tell you to do, you do your penance, and maybe you can have some sense of subjective peace with God. At the very center of all the sacraments was the mass. If you were to walk into a medieval church, especially at the time of Martin Luther, but beyond and even after, even the very architecture of the church made clear that the mass was central. Everything pointed towards the altar on which the mass would be celebrated. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I'll put it on the screen behind me here so you can read it too. It said this, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross, is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. 
You got to catch what they're saying here. There is in the, the heart of the mass a re-offering up of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sins. His death on the cross, as you receive grace through your baptism especially, but his death paid for your previous sins. Listen, it paid for your original sin problem, but it did not expunge your future sins or your present sins. For that, you need the continual reenactment of the death of Jesus Christ. During the worship service, the mass, the bread and the wine, you say, how, how could they reenact this? Here's how. Here's how this happened. The bread and the wine, which is the Eucharist, they're believed to be transformed literally into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's a doctrine known as transubstantiation. So upon, here's how it would work. Upon the priest's command, the bread and wine are transformed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, wherein he is then offered up again as a sacrifice for sin, and not just one more time, but again and again and again and again and again. And I, let me just say this as clearly as I can and reaffirm what we've already read. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. This is the word of God. Since, excuse me, repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Do you see the problem theologically with this? By offering Christ up repeatedly, you're saying, here's what they're saying, you're saying his death was not sufficient. It could not cover the sins. It had to be offered up again, and this violates, it goes directly contrary to the word of God. And this is what the reformers saw. This was no mere minor issue. This was at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had accomplished the saving work of humanity, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, not to be offered up again because it was finished. He declared it. His, one, his blood once for all has appeased the wrath of God and granted us peace with him by grace through faith. Paul says when you get this, when you get the, the idea that God has, has, has breached the impassable chasm between you and him and made peace, then you can understand how you can live with one another in peace. Verse 14 begins to unfold this. He says, he himself is our peace, who has made us, and again, this is back to the Jew and the Gentile, division and hostility, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, again, a reference to the cross and his body being sacrificed, the dividing wall of hostility. An essential part of how Christ made peace is by destroying this dividing wall of hostility. He tears down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, it's important to understand that the Old Testament concept of the temple, and biblically and theologically speaking, the temple was the dwelling place of God. And the presence of God dwelt there in a, in a powerful and, and very visible way. And uh, the closer you got into the center of the temple where the Holy of Holies was located, the closer you were drawing near to the very presence of God. But you see, in the first century and just prior to the first century, the Jewish people had actually built a wall around the outer courts of the temple, a four to five foot high wall that was made of stone, and it was a visible barrier that declared Gentiles were not to go past here. They're not allowed into the temple. They can only come this far. And in essence, what they were saying is this, don't you understand? You're not worthy enough to go in near the presence of God. That's reserved for us, the Jews. 
They've actually found, archaeological digs have found the inscriptions that were placed around the wall that declared that if a Gentile was to go past this barrier, he would be guilty, and then they'd give him the, the, the punishment of death. Just imagine the hostility. This visible wall was a constant reminder that you're not worthy, but we are. This ethnocentric, this racially charged hostility that existed sounds a lot like our world today in many ways, doesn't it? We are God's people, not you. God chose us, not you. They wrongly understood God's grace, didn't they? They created a greater division. And here it says that the, the flesh of Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ, tore down this wall. Now, I just want to remind you as well that this, this was a real physical barrier. It was a constant reminder of the inequality and a constant reminder of the hostility that existed. And, and you say, well, how relevant was this to Paul? Do you remember why Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell in the first place? Acts chapter 21 just, just let's be reminded of this. Acts chapter 21, look at this. Crying out, this is the, the, the Gentiles in, this, in Ephesus. Men of Israel, help, or the Jews. This is, this is the Jews saying this to Paul. This is the man, speaking of Paul, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, look at this, the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. This accusation right here was the catalyst that led to Paul's nearly four years of imprisonment and his current Roman custody as he's writing this very letter. As Paul writes this passage, he clearly has the temple in his mind. He clearly has this hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles that is visible in this wall, this real wall. But listen, this wall represented another barrier that separated them. And Paul goes on to explain what that barrier was in verse 15. See, what was that, what was that barrier really, Paul? At the very heart, what was that barrier? Look at this, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Paul says the law the law was the great barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. The law that was given to Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, it was given to Israel. If you remember, it's fascinating to read through the Old Testament and you read the law that's being given and the, the reason why the law, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the key reasons was so that Israel would be distinct and separate from all the other nations. It was actually built into the concept of the law so that they wouldn't look like the other people around them. It's really strange in one sense, isn't it? I mean, so you think of the laws that made them a unique people. And some of them, they, they seem so outlandish, and people can't process why, why in the world would they be told they can't weave these two fabrics together? Who in the world thought it was a good idea to not eat bacon? <laughs> Those poor Jew Jewish people. The whole point was to say to the nations, listen, we're not like you. Not in the negative finger-pointing judgmental sense, but, but in the sense that we have been mercifully redeemed by God, and we have been called out from our sinful past and our sinful living, and now our lives are being lived in a way that reflects obedience to God because we walk in relationship with him. There's a parallel here with Christians. Listen, there are a lot of people who think Christians are weird, right? For things that we do. 
Some stuff is really weird and we should stop doing, but there are legitimate things we do that the world around us, they can't really process. You know, there are people who, who look at us right now doing what we're doing and say, you guys are weird. Why are you going to church? What a waste of time. You could be sleeping in this morning. You're singing to some being you can't see. You're weird. Like, yeah, I see you singing in your car. You see, part of the point is this, that God always wants his people to look different than the world around them. Because it's a way in which God is saying, listen, the, the gods of the nations, the gods that they worship, they're not real gods at all. Here, here and here alone with my people, I am the true and living God who alone deserves to be worshiped and praised. Paul declares that Jesus has torn down this dividing wall, this wall that made it clear that they were not a people of God, that they were not chosen by God. And now in Jesus Christ, he strips it down by his blood through the cross, and he says, don't you understand, in the new covenant, in this new era, there is going to be a mass inclusion of the Gentile people that was always promised in the Old Testament law, by the way. You see, through his perfect life, Jesus has fulfilled the demands of the law, and through his sacrificial death, he paid the penalty for our breaking the law. The law here is described as being expressed in ordinances, as Paul says. Kind of a strange way to say it. It can be translated expressed in decrees. And there are some people who want to make more of this, I think, than they should. They want to say that, well, this is talking about Jesus only filling certain aspects of the law, like the sacrificial system the ceremonial aspects or the civil aspects of the law. But I think what Paul is really talking about here is that Jesus has fulfilled the entire law. All of the law is given in decrees and ordinances. Every part of the law is a commandment from the mouth of God. And I think what Paul is wanting to highlight is this. Don't you see Jesus fulfilled the entire law? For Paul, the work of Christ marked the end of the Mosaic covenant because Christ had inaugurated a new and better covenant by his blood. The best way to understand this idea of expressed in ordinances is simply, I think, to recognize that Christ has abolished the law entirely. All of it was fulfilled in Christ, and thereby it was abolished. You say, but didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount that I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? Yes, absolutely, and I believe that at, at the heart, that's essentially what Paul is saying. He's saying Jesus fulfills the law and thereby abolishes every part of the law that would create some kind of a distinction between racial or ethnic identities or anybody else for that matter. It's all been nullified, it's been brought down because it has been fulfilled entirely in Christ. It is invalidated and inoperated, inoperative. Nobody has to follow the Old Testament law any longer it's come to an end. And Jesus Christ has established a new covenant that is regulated on a different basis, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But this is why Paul could write in the companion letter to Ephesians in Colossians, he could write Colossians 2, 16 and 17 and say these words, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are all in regards, listen, to the old covenant, the Mosaic law. These, he says, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, all of those things, all of those ceremonial aspects, all of those differences that kind of marked us out, that seemed trivial at the time, all of those celebrations, and the, the, even the very Sabbath and these festivals, they were all a shadow that pointed to the fuller reality and the substance, which was Jesus Christ. 
And if Christ has fulfilled them, then they are no longer necessary for us. Christ is necessary. You see, by removing the condemning power of the law, he breaks down this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, putting us all in the same plane of God's grace. And I love the language he uses here, killing the hostility. God kills his son, Jesus Christ, so he can kill the hostility that exists between us and God and us and one another. I think this is a really helpful reminder that there is no room in the family of God, in the church of Jesus Christ, for racism. There's no room for bigotry, even division. And disunity in the body of Christ is condemned greatly in Scripture. In fact, we are told constantly to fight for unity in the body of Christ. And the reason we're to do that is because Jesus took the hostility to the grave with him, and he left it there when he rose from the dead. That means, listen, that any barriers that remain are ones that we have built up ourselves. And I really believe this is important for us to understand, because do you catch the goal here of these texts? The whole point is that he has taken what seems to be irreconcilable and he has reconciled them through the cross in one body. The whole picture here is a picture of unity that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The horizontal unity and peace we experience is to produce in the family of God a peace among us that screams forth, listen, and points to the greater reality of the peace that all of humanity can enjoy with him. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the goal, one new man, one new covenant, a new law, the law of Christ, You know, the thing that made them separate and distinct is now destroyed, and the thing that makes them together and the same is Jesus Christ. This is why I love when you look around the church and you see diversity in the church. You know, this is the way the church is supposed to look, diverse, not homogenous, just one ethnic identity. I understand their place in the world, but that's not necessarily possible, but especially, increasingly more so, in a place like the Durham region and in Toronto, you know, the melting pot for the, the world More and more, the church needs to look like the ethnically diverse kingdom of God that we will one day all live in. Does this mean that there are no differences? No, of course there are. That's part of the beauty of the body of Christ. The unity we experience includes, listen, diversity without disunity. It includes distinction because we are unique, some of us more than others, but it creates a distinction without division. This is the reality in the hearts and churches where Christ truly reigns, the heart of peace and reconciliation because we understand what God has done to reconcile us to himself and make peace between us and him. And so that means, listen, this is really important because, listen, if, if we're all, all you have to do is turn on the news to see that racism, bigotry, prejudice, they're all things that are bred into the human sinful condition and they're not going to go away until Jesus returns. There will be a day, praise God, right? Praise God, when everybody will not look at others because of their skin color, where nobody will be disunified, where there will be no division over anything, everybody will be one in Christ. There will be no barriers. But I really believe this is important for us because sometimes I think racism and prejudice and bigotry exist in our own hearts. For some of us, even in this place today, we're holding on to deep racial division in our hearts. 
Some of us have sin in, in our hearts preventing reconciliation. Maybe it's another race. Maybe it's another ethnic background. Maybe it's just simply because of other sins that have created a barrier in relationships. Some of you, listen, I understand, some of you have wounds from being sinned against that prevent you from walking in unity in the body. But I want to encourage you this morning, if you're sitting here in a place of woundedness, if you are living in that bitterness and anger, you are not hurting anybody but yourself. And it's incredibly important to look at the cross and see, listen, that the cross reminds us that God has forgiven our sins, but it also reminds us that Jesus heals our wounds. And you've walked in here with wounds. We just want to let you know that this is a place to come find healing at the foot of the cross. That God exists to remind you that the pain that was done to you can be fixed by the grace of God. You can be reminded of who you are in Him. God wants to bring these things to the surface in our lives so that he can deal with them and they can bring healing and restoration and unity. The cross reminds us that God's plan has always been a multi-ethnic people, but beyond that, listen, it has always been a unified people. Yes, we struggle. Yes, every family is dysfunctional, amen? It probably wasn't loud enough. Every family is dysfunctional, including this one, right? We, we hurt one another. You see, some of you have been hurt by other people in the church. Some of you may even be hurt by me. But my hope and prayer is this. Listen, that the peace that we have with God reminds us of the peace we are to have with one another. There are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. Reconciliation is of great importance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church cannot exist apart from reconciliation, and so we must learn to live and walk in reconciliation. There must be a willingness and a humility on our parts. Listen, when we wrong one another, to admit our wrongs, to confess them before God, and to go to others, there must be a willingness to not live in hurt and bitterness, and to extend the same kind of forgiveness that God in his mercy and kindness has given to us. Amen? This is how the body functions when the sin still exists. This is how we deal with things God's way, when we understand what God has done to reconcile us to himself, the peace that he has established, then we understand how we can learn to live in peace with one another. He replaces the hostility with peace. And thirdly, we see that not only is Christ alone our life and our peace, but Christ alone is our way. Christ alone provides a new way for us to live. Verse 17 says, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Who came? Who came and preached this message? It was Jesus Christ himself. You see, after he accomplished our peace through the cross and through his shed blood and he was raised back to life, he announced his peace to the world. He gave the great demonstration of his peace in the cross to show, listen, every sin can be done away with. That barrier is destroyed. All you need to do is come to the Prince of Peace. And this is the message, loved ones, that is carried from Jesus Christ to the apostles, to the church fathers, to the reformers, to the Puritans, to this very church today. We exist to declare to the nations a message of peace. You can have peace with God. You can have peace with one another through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, as we look at the answers the world tried to give to the, the problems that exist, to the lack of peace in the world, 
This is a stunning reminder that the answer to world peace is not found in politics or protests, no matter how important they are. The answer to world peace is not found in social justice or education. The answer to peace is not found in behavioral or legislative reform. The answer to the world peace is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. And the way to peace with God individually, listen, this is the message we proclaim. The way to peace with God is not about moralism. It's not about religious devotion. It's not about human achievement. It's all about Jesus Christ and him alone. The beauty of this reminds us, too, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All are welcome. Bring no achievements. We all stand in the same place of neediness before the throne of God. As Jesus himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you see in verse 18 that this peace actually means full access to God? Where we were strangers, where we were aliens... Now we find that we are brought into the family of God and given full access to the Father. And listen, notice this. The Trinity is just, it just leaps from this verse, doesn't it? For through him, Jesus Christ, we both, all peoples who believe and have faith in Christ, have access in one spirit, the spirit of God, to the Father. The Trinity at work once again in our salvation. And the axis of salvation for any and all who come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's available to all. It's the same way for everyone. The message doesn't change. Any and all are welcome. All barriers are set aside. All fears are removed. Grace is extended to access the Father because of the Son and through the Holy Spirit. I, what I love about this, too, this is a reminder that this is a direct flight. Okay, There's, This is nonstop. There's no layovers involved here. You don't have to go to someone else to get you to God. You don't have to do something else to get to God. Christ has done enough. He's done it all. You only have to go to Christ. Now, this is important because during the time of the Reformation, the Roman Church, Catholic Church, they saw Jesus Christ not as a gracious, loving Savior predominantly, but as a hard-hearted, vindictive, angry, holy judge. And they looked at Jesus with these eyes and they thought, there's no way I can go to Jesus to go to God. Jesus is too holy and he'll condemn me in my sin right away. And so the dilemma this put them in was this, well, well, who can go for us? I know. Let's go talk to his mother. Mary, Mary. I mean, surely he'll listen to his mother Mary. Surely he will not turn her away. Surely she has access to him. And Mary became for the church the mediator through whom people could approach him. And so they prayed to Mary. They worshiped Mary. In fact, the, the catechism in the Catholic church reads this. It'll be up on the screen. It says, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. By asking Mary to pray for us, you see this? She becomes the mediator. We acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners and we address ourselves to the mother of mercy. We've just seen already in chapter two that it is him who is rich in mercy. The all holy one, they call her. They say we give ourselves over to her now in the today of our lives and our trust broadens further already at the present moment to surrender the hour of our death wholly to her care. 
May she be there as she was at her son's death on the cross. May she welcome us as our mother at the hour of our passing to lead us to her son, Jesus, in paradise. It reads this elsewhere in the Catechism, that because of Mary's singular cooperation with the action of the Holy Spirit, the church loves to pray in communion with the Virgin Mary to magnify with her the great things the Lord has done for her and to entrust supplications and praises to her. And saints of old remind us of how far away that the church was from the biblical reality of Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and man. This is what John Chrysostom said. He says, sinners receive pardon by the intercession of Mary alone. St. Thomas Aquinas said that Mary is the whole hope of our salvation. St. Bernard said, as the moon is placed between the sun and the earth, so is Mary stationed between God and us to pour out his graces continually upon us. Church, listen, let us be clear. Mary is in heaven, and she is not interceding for us. She's worshiping the Son of God like everyone else. Mary was privileged, yes, but she was not perfect. She needs Jesus right now just as much as we do. She does not mediate our prayers. She doesn't even hear our prayers. Our prayers... Our way to the Father is Christ alone, for there is one mediator and only one between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The scriptures tell us that we need not fear him. He is our savior and friend. He loves us deeply, and so we go to him, and he provides us direct access to the Father. The unifying power of Jesus provides our way to him, and listen, it provides our way forward in him. He's calling us now as a, a church, as people of God, to walk in this peace. Later, he'll tell us to maintain, in Ephesians, the unity of the Spirit, to walk in reconciliation, to walk in humility, to walk in unity and love. And church, listen, this is hard. This is really hard. This is why we need the access to the Father. We can't do it. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need God to break us. We need God to change us. We need God to humble us. We need God to fix what we can't fix, amen? It's interesting that we can revert back to divisions and disunity in the body of Christ even in light of what we know to be true. It's just a reminder of our human frailty. But I'm reminded of this, even, even amongst the great spiritual giants, even the apostles struggled with disunity and slipping back into division. In fact, if you read through Galatians 2, what you'll see there is that Paul actually speaks of a time when he confronted the great apostle Peter. Remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter gets this vision that God uses to tell him that the Gentiles are actually accepted into the family of God. In essence, reiterating what we've already looked at today, the dividing wall has come down in Jesus Christ. Everybody has equal access to God through Jesus. Peter had gone out and he'd actually begun to walk in line with this truth. But something happened. See, Peter got insecure when a group of Jewish believers came to town and he started just eating with them to the exclusion of the Gentile believers he once ate with all the time. 
And Paul confronts him to his face on this hypocrisy. And what's so fascinating, listen, is that he doesn't come up and try to change his behavior. He doesn't just come up and say, hey, stop being a racist, Peter. You want to know what he says to him? This is so helpful for our hearts because so often we simply try to be, change our behavior, simply try and do what's right instead of going back to the source of all true life change, all true unity in the body of Christ. Here's what he says to him. Peter, you aren't walking in step with the gospel. The gospel, Peter, reminds you that you were once alienated, you were once far off, and God in his kindness has brought you near. The gospel tears down barriers between you and God, and the gospel tears down barriers between all of humanity. The way you are living is going contrary to the gospel of reconciliation, Peter, that we have believed and proclaimed. And can you just grasp how important this is then for us, church? Listen, every family has its problems. But if we are going to be proclaimers of peace, we must practice peace. The family of God is one in him. All of us who are far off have been brought near. He has made peace by the blood of the cross. So let us fight for the unity that cost God his only son. Amen? Let us strive to walk in step with the gospel. Let humility reign in our hearts. Let dependence upon him for change and growth and conviction rule in our hearts. Let the encouragement from the spirit cause us to do what is right, to obey no matter how hard it is for the sake of the gospel of peace. If Christ alone is sufficient to bring peace between us and God, surely, surely Christ alone is sufficient to help us walk in peace with one another. And if we can do that, we trust that God will shine forth boldly and powerfully the message of peace that is manifest here and proclaimed through us to the glory of God the Father. Father, we pray that you would stir our hearts with these truths. Oh God, to be reminded of who we were so far off, so undeserving the hostility that existed, Lord, between us and you, and Lord, all of our own doing, all because of our sin, all because of our rebellion, all because our failure, Lord, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, all because we refuse to worship you above all things. And God, we confess that we even slip back into these old ways of life. And it simply reminds us, Lord, of how much we needed your reconciling work through the blood of Jesus then and how much we need it now. God, we confess to you that we need you. We need Christ. We need the fresh reminders. We need the power of your spirit. We need to access the Father regularly and plead for mercy and help. For God, we are weak and frail, but you are so rich in mercy. Your love knows no bounds, and Father, your power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, lives in us. God, there is nothing that you can't accomplish, and so Father, we, we lay ourselves down at the mercy of you and your power and your grace. We say, God, would you make us a unified body, a place, Lord, yes, that is hurting and struggling and hurts one another, and at the same time, Lord, fights for unity because we see how much it costs you. We see the beauty of it. We see the value of it. We see how, Lord, it, it so preciously upholds the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that, Lord, may that be our desire 
to uphold the gospel and the glory of our God and Father. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.